Hear that? That's the sound of your farm business growing. Tree planting can work hand-in-hand with food production, help restore nature, and you can even generate extra income. Build the future of your business, your land, and the environment with a Woodland Creation Grant and receive free expert advice to start your tree planting journey. Find out how your business can branch out. Search Woodland Creation today. Grants are for England only. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show. But just quickly, before I get started with my first speaker, don't forget you can get one basis CPD point for tuning into this podcast by emailing the name of the podcast episode plus your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. This season has been a particularly tricky one, not least thanks to the stop-start harvest, but even before that was weed control. Many growers might feel like they've taken three steps back in weed control this year, with grass weeds doing seemingly particularly well. So in this podcast episode, we're going to focus on the latest updates in arable weed control. We're going to start off with advice from weed control connoisseur John Cussens. Uh, We're also going to get an update on the registration situation with glyphosate. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our first speaker, NIAB weed expert, John Cussons, onto the podcast. So, John, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast again. I think this is your second time doing it. Um, But it's a different season, so I'm sure a lot's changed. Backed by unpopular demand, though, John. (laughs) Season we've just had. (laughs) Um, so yeah, on that, just to start, um, I wanted to look at kind of the season as it is now, um, a lot of grass weeds around this year. So why do you think weed control this season has been so bad in particular? Uh, I mean, we've, we've got this year, we've got all the different elements that contribute to variability in grass weed controlling the crop played out to a different extent, I think, in, in different fields. And I think we've got to remember that the context we're in is that for, for black grass, no, I mean, less so for other weeds, but for black grass, for the most part, growers have lost the option of a really good post-emergence, you know, in the crop herbicide to control weeds that survive the initial application. And, you know, we've got around that quite successfully, really, by moving away from contact-acting herbicides as the main mode of control into stacking and sequencing pre-emergence herbicides, soil-acting herbicides. But that does mean we do all our weed control, effective weed control, really within a few weeks of the crop being sown. And then we need the crop itself to deliver suppressiveness to get from the control of plants to the control of heads that we see in the in the fields in the summer. Uh, and this year, we've had a year, not in isolation, we've had other years where we've seen it, where because of the conditions in the spring, a bit of drought, some funny, you know, cold temperatures, the crop canopy hasn't been particularly suppressive. So what we've seen is wherever, um, you know, e- even in situations where weed control has been relatively successful in getting the plant number down, we've got lots and lots of heads. 
And then if you add to that a very difficult autumn where we had some farmers who drilled perhaps at the early end of the autumn window, they hadn't had enough rainfall uh, soil moisture to get a decent chip of weeds. So they've got high density weeds in the crop that they're trying to control. The conditions are, are relatively dry, which we know um, those are the sort of conditions where pre-em herbicides don't work so well. So you've got that high numbers um, conditions, then adding a lack of crop suppressiveness in many places. You've got lots of different variables. And then I, I think we do need to increasingly understand that one of the consequences of using more and more soil residual herbicides and relying on them more and more is that our margin of crop safety is reduced. So for people, we had a kind of autumn, which is a, not a great autumn for that sort of variable, where we got very dry conditions, which led to not necessarily great seabeds, and then rainfall events. So rainfall coming in great concentrated periods, you know, inches in the morning or a day and so on. And those are the sort of uh, conditions which wash those herbicides down into the crop seed zone and gives problems with crop safety and that in turn can reduce the press suppressiveness of the crop so you know that's a long-winded say way of saying that basically we have seen every single element which gives us variability in the success of grass weed controlling the crop um a massive variations field to field and enormous variations across the country because of differences in the in the timing of getting the rain, of you know that getting rain to give a decent chip, getting rain that that um, helped herbicides to work, and then for some people, big lumps of rain fall in short periods of time that compromise crop safety. And we've seen them all, as I say, and as I say, incredibly variable across the piece. So there's a there are, it's no doubt that there are a lot of grass weeds out there, or there were in the summer. Um, but still, in places, some doing an amazing job, you know, keeping weed populations down. So, you know, every possible combination of the, the good, indifferent and really bad. It's a perfect storm, isn't it? That phrase we love to use in farming when it all goes wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, we, we, we see these elements every single year. You know, we see that. One of the realities of that scenario for black grass is high densities of weeds. We just don't get the effectiveness in in uh, reduction in heads. We see people with drill crops and the conditions are dry, herbicides don't work as well. I think what we've got is all of these things coming together in one season, combinations of different things, uh, which make it a, an almost uniquely frustrating season, mm -hmm. I think. I think other years, you know, it's been a little bit clearer where for individual farmers where the problem's been, you know, what they can learn from that experience and, and improve grassroots management going forward. I think the problem this year has been that, to my mind, there are farmers out there who've, who've got really good at integrated weed management um, in practice. They understand the principles and they're deploying it. But still, they get a poor outcome in in a season like this, and and that is terribly frustrating. And I really don't want it to mean that we're not 
continuing down that path of seeing how we can combine different elements, uh, rotational, the way that we're growing the crop, um, and and then add the herbicide into that and, and actually have a much more sustainable approach to grass weed management. I don't want this season perhaps to undermine that. That's the, maybe the biggest danger long term. So for those farmers that have, you know, perhaps feel like they've gone back a step this season in terms of keeping on top of weeds, what would your advice be kind of going into the the autumn? I think for as an industry, we need to have one of the things that I, I feel more and more as we you know, do more farm events and we talk more about um, these different weeds that we face now. We've got to have a much more realistic expectation of the level of weed control that we can achieve with herbicides. You know, we are not in a 90% plus weed control era. We're in a 70% plus weed control era. And the variability means that we want people to have enough other elements in their management plans to give robustness when we experience a season like this where the weed control is at its lowest level. Um, So I would say just practically, obviously mapping and monitoring and and picking up the level of of risk-based management that you adopt. Um, You know, not every field can be drilled at the last possible moment, but, you know, it, it, it feels that are due for an autumn crop have got to be drilled at a drilling date that is appropriate for the weed pressure. Um, We don't want people to overcook the herbicides. I do think that's one thing that we've perhaps learned from this season. Um, We've had a narrative of, oh, we've got less and less herbicides and regulations stealing products and, you know, they're not being developed as quickly. Actually, if you think about it this season with Oxonophen and Luxemo, and we've still got Fluxenacet base herbicides, CTU has come back in, albeit a lower rate. Maybe that's more useful for ryegrass and probes. But actually, we've got a lot of herbicides. The challenge is that, that having lost the contact acting herbicides, they're all residual soil acting herbicides. We can't use them all at the same time. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to be much more conscious of how we're, you know, it, there isn't space for everything. And I think that's been our go-to approach as new herbicide chemistry has become available. We've added it into the programme. Well, I think we've reached the sort of finite limit of weed control. And that you do reach a point where you cannot put more herbicide into the crop. Uh, and see better outcomes. So, uh, uh, yeah, and so a realistic expectation, what is the level of weed control that you can achieve? Uh, risk-based management, focus again on where are the opportunities to, to drill those crops at the beginning of the window, where have you got prioritised later drill crops? And, and again, realis- realism, you know, we farmers have been doing this a long time, you know, a lot goes at this. We all have. There are fields this summer which are not appropriate for a winter-sown crop next year because of the grass weed pressure. And, you know, we tended to sort of kid ourselves into, oh, it'll be all right. Well, I think it might be all right, but the chances are it won't be. So 
um, comes back to that realism aspect. And what about, you know, cultural control still? We're obviously seeing this kind of shift in farming systems to reduce store zero till, adding cover crops and things like that. What What's this kind of whole system change doing in terms of weed populations? Well, I think that the, the primary thing that it's, that it's doing, as you'd expect, is it's, it's firstly having an impact on the weeds that we're trying to control. So... Uh, you know, like a, a low disturbance, I would say, rather than a, a direct drilling, but a low disturbance approach to cover cropping, having competition with the weeds, suppression of the weeds outside of the, of the productive crop, um, and then crop diversity, these kind of three pillars. These are really positive elements for management of some of the weeds that we worry about, headline weeds, but they're also management approaches that lead to pressure from other weeds. So we've seen a massive uptick in brooms this year, um, right across the board. So brooms is not one thing. Obviously, we've got these two groups, and then uh, within each group, a couple of key species, all of which are being encouraged. Um, and the, the meadow brome and the rye brome, because they have a spring germination, cohort as well, Crop diversity isn't having the impact on them that it perhaps is on very winter annuals like black grass in particular, but also sterile brown and grapevine. So, sort of with science 101, you get the weeds that you deserve, is the, the old saying. And we see that playing out in uh, shifts in systems, leading to shifts in weed flora, people seeing different weeds are emerging weeds like Virchervil and Vulpia, um, which are very invasive weeds and invading these no-till systems, uh, but also old weeds are changing the balance of old weeds. And that's likely to continue, honestly. Um, I think it means that, I mean, it's great for people who study weeds. It's a really fascinating time to see this <laughs> change played out, you know, live as we you know, go through the seasons, but for farmers and for agronomists, we need to get back to sort of 1970s style understanding of weeds and weed biology, which I think sort of lost as we got away from more effective herbicide chemistry. Yeah, I guess it's frustrating for farmers because they feel like, you know, they, they know the ins and outs of things like black grass now, and now there's just, you know, a new problem that they need to get their heads around. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it looks like a game of whack-a-mole, isn't it? Played yeah. out long term where you're, you're managing one weed and then another one pops up. But, you know, the, the weed are, you know, if you're drilling a crop, the weeds are there first. You are introducing the crop into their habitat. The weeds will, are a fairly intrinsic element of all farming systems. Uh, again, you know, it's not to be weed management uh, patronisation here, but we're going to have to work with that and do what we can. You know, there will always be a key weed in the system. If the key weed isn't black grass, but it's brome, you're going to have to have a management package that addresses that problem and not have the black grass management package, which is... Again, I think that getting back to kind of 
a much more fundamental understanding, first of all, of what weeds are you, you are targeting, and then the fact that they all have a different biology that things that they'll germinate different levels and different crops and that germinate within those crops have just slightly different dynamics and then tailor our management to target them. I think the concern is if we don't um, preempt to a large extent the, these changes, but we're just very uh, passive and reactionary. So we, you know, we, I don't want to put anyone off moving towards conservation agriculture, soil conservation management practices at all. But if you don't understand that alongside that change, you're going to have to pick up your level of integrated weed management. At least you'll focus on it. You end up with very high levels of certain weeds in the system, and then you have to back away, and it's sort of self-destructive. And I, I think the worry is that if we allow very, very high population levels of bromes, for example, and we're very reliant on one family of herbicides within the SUs, that, you know, your uh, Broadway-type products, Paleo, Atlantis, Pacifica, those sort of, we're very reliant on one family of herbicides. You add into the mix that we've allowed the abundance of those of those individual weeds to grow to a very high level in fields. It is herbicide selection nirvana, but we can head that off. You know, we can understand as you're making introducing these elements into your system or making that transition, just to be a bit more aware of how it's changing the weed floor and how that needs to be managed to make that transition sustainable and do you, maybe maybe I'm, i mean that is a bit that's wishful thinking isn't it but i do think we're gonna have to have uh, and you'd say i would say that wouldn't i but we're gonna have to have a much uh, we're gonna have to bake in sustainable weed management into these systems or i, ju I just think they're not sustainable people in the find themselves having to back away from really positive changes that they've made in order to manage the weeds that are got out of control in those systems. So it's positive to, to think about it, to think about how glyphosate comes under more pressure, for example, in a in a you know, a, a no-till system is an absence of mechanical weeding. Yeah. So that means in total more of your weed control is coming from glyphosate, more pressure on the glyphosate. If if people who make that change aren't stepping up their level of vigilance with respect to plants like ryegrass in particular we've big focus on ryegrass at the moment but also rupia and some of the bromes just you know monitoring for individual plants surviving high rates of glyphosate being prepared to reintroduce targeted mechanical weeding and cultivations to prevent any plants that's that survive good rates of glyphosate from going on setting seed that's all it takes and you will i guarantee it will never have glyphosate resistance. So it's not something that fundamentally undermines the, the change that we want to see. It's just introducing one or two key elements into it to make sure it's sustainable. Yeah, I guess this, you know, l lack of cultivation is putting pressure on all herbicides, really. Yes and no. It, if you have got a lack of cultivation you have you're not burying well, the obvious thing is you're not 
bury in season creating a long-term seed bank so you will be more successful with approaches where you're trying to get seeds weed seeds to chip and germinate before you drill in the right conditions you're also by leaving weed seeds on the soil surface they are more vulnerable to natural losses so it can be a real positive for weeds that like cultivation black grass would be a classic example of one um but the flip side is for some weeds that don't like cultivation highlight bros yes you're putting more pressure on uh, a limited family of herbicides to deliver the weed control in the system so i wouldn't sort of make blankets i think i wouldn't make blanket statements i think i'd get people to focus where we think key risk is yeah okay and on to cover crops um you know some people are kind of using them as part of their weed management strategy um what are your views on kind of cover crops ability to help control weeds and also the risk that they pose in kind of introducing new weeds onto the farm and like if there's any species that should be potentially avoided because they could end up becoming a bit of a weed problem yeah i mean so that's i mean that's a very interesting topic with the this sort of introducing weeds into the system through what we call environmental seed mixes. My impression, to be honest, is that it doesn't seem so much to be cover crops that are introduced. So we're talking about species like Echinoclea proscallii, barnyard grass, and the uh, tourist tremona. There's some pigweed examples, ex formerly Twitter, as we say now, uh, at the moment. Um, these are weeds which are getting into the seed production system and then getting spread in the seed. I get the impression that it's more um, mixes for game cover, maybe some of the OB mixes where it's more of a cover crops. I think in part because they're, they're often being purchased as mono cultures of seed and mixed and to be honest i think there's a tendency if you're into cover crops to also purchase cover crops from high-end suppliers which i think is obviously going to be a massive benefit but we're definitely seeing um biosecurity failures i'd say and i think it's worth differentiating failure in biosecurity that bringing a weed onto the farm through your own action from this kind of natural process where we've, we've got these weeds in the UK, whether they're bullpeer or dirt-shervil or brown species or different wild oats, and then they're already in the system, if you like, and, and then changing the way that we grow crops is just in, encouraging them uh, differentially from, from other weeds that we've already got. This biosecurity failure where we're seeing, um, I mean, we saw some dodder coming in on a, a clover element of a mix, as I say, we've seen thorn apple come in and all sorts of bits and pieces and some of them are quite worrying some of them are actually if you're if you've got these sort of mixes and you're intending to graze them off a sheep you've got toxic harmful plants in the mix so it, but i think it's, it's worth differentiating the two because obviously with a biosecurity failure it's entirely in your um, control as to where you're sourcing seeds the checks that you're making on the seeds that you're buying and also, if you see 
strange plants that you don't recognise and aren't supposed to be there um, as a result of sowing these mixes, you've got a very short-term um, trigger to do something about it. Mm. So we, we are, that is an element. We are definitely seeing that. I, myself, I mean, perhaps, you know, I wouldn't say I'm on this, on this year. It's just in the examples I've seen, they've been in environment seeds, pre-mixed mixes, targeting these uh, habitats more than perhaps uh, cover crops or catch crops. Yeah, no, I've had the same. I think that the, the cover crops and catch crops, the role that they're playing for weed management is is more about the support that they're giving to the crop and more soil than it is a direct impact on the weed itself. You know, it's hard to understand the mechanism of how a cover crop, if you put in a, a cover crop mix after a winter cereal saying and then have it grow through the winter try to put a spring crop in it's hard to just understand what the, the mechanism of a cover crop having a direct impact on the weed is because it, you know it's it, there's no difference having a fallow and spraying the fallow off or cultivate the, the cover crop in that context is a catch crop in many ways or a trap crop rather you, you want the pest to come into it to be destroyed um i think where the cover we see the cover crop I and mean, um david purdy with agrivista stole long has done some really really nice work on this and looked at it in, in much more detail i think where you see the cover crop having a role in that context is it's supporting the spring crop itself and you know, good, healthy, vigorous crops uh, getting away quickly, producing good canopies. These are inherently giving you better outcomes for the weed that does appear in the spring crops. So I don't know. I mean, that, being pedantic about the mechanism isn't helpful, though, is it? I mean, it, you know, if you just say if you're establishing a decent cover crop and it's improving that the outcomes for the crop through its effect on soil predominantly and the conditions for drilling the crop that's a positive thing um, not be pedantic about whether it's having a direct weed, man weed control effect is probably the approach to take <laughs> and um, you mentioned kind of new product introductions like Luximo um, and kind of what they're bringing to the toolkit what about um, you know like mechanical we are seeing new tools coming into the um, non-chemical space um perhaps you know obviously because of the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness of herbicides we've not actually got a very mature uh, set of technologies but they're definitely emerging and they're in there so uh, precision guided interrow hose we've shown now and it's the work that my colleague will smith has done has shown as a as a sort of it's like a proof of concept, but we can deploy that technology even in, in narrow row crops, broad acre narrow row crops like winter cereals, and it'd be a useful adjunct to herbicides. I think probably not a displacement for herbicides, but it's a useful way of getting robustness because of this variability. Um, we, um, again, Will, who's very much leading this area in, in NIAB, is looking at harvest weed seed capture approaches with Redicott 
you have a seed mill, um, which is a, a retrofit or a, a fit to a new combine add-on, which mills weed seeds and go through the combine. We have the top cut and collect type approach where we're, we're uh, this is a Zer machine where you can, uh, well, I mean, weed surfers out for ages, but you basically surf across the top of the standing crop, cut weed heads off. The advantage with the reserve spin on it, this top cut plate, is that you're foraging the material that you're cutting, and that that's a real positive. It opens up much more flexibility. You're not worried about um, whatever seed you're surfing having the potential to maturate or, or be viable at the time, and you're basically just going through the spreading weed seeds. So that this, the top cut plate is an interesting spin. But also the, the, you know, the, I guess the public policy and maybe the looking at the cost effectiveness of, of relying too much on herbicides in the long term. Um, on a European context, pressure around glyphosate. We are seeing a renewed interest in things like electric weeding. So there's a really nice UK-based company that's um, developing electric-based weeding, uh, root wave but bringing it into a, uh, an inter-row format now, potentially, so you could use it inter-row with something like maize, and maybe even we could develop it further and use it as a, an alternative to hiring in broad-acre crops. So we're, we're beginning to see that sort of technology, uh, first of all, be a bit out there, and then mature, and then you know evolve, and become more and more realistic uh, and uh, you know I, I, my thing is that we are going to need those approaches those they're, they're not cultural control per se it's not about the way that crops you grow the way that you grow but they're they're non-chemical direct weed control herbicide alternatives in, in many ways uh, and it all adds to the toolkit i think we we, we because they're there's not a lot of maturity in terms of the, the kit itself, but also that our thinking about the way that we're using it, we have got a road to travel to just um, look at how we integrate these approaches more effectively. Uh, and, you know, understand the potential, like all, like a herbicide, you know, each of these approaches will have a different weed spectrum, different mm -hmm. efficacy level or different weeds, and we really need to understand that. It's not going to be a, you've got a weed, grass weed that's a problem in this crop by a seed mill. It can be much more about well, what what's the key weed pressure you've got in your system. Where do you want to invest your, uh, your money? Yeah, I guess a lot of it at the end of the day will come down to the cost of it. And Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, I think, I mean, the, you know, the, the most mature technology or if you can call it technology, the inter-row hoeing, um, there is already a pretty strong case for, you know, if you have herbicide-resistant grass weeds, your upper level of weed control is limited and you're quite variable in your outcomes. There's already a, a reasonable case. I think that the sticking point, again, I'm uh, talking about work that Will Smith has done, the sticking point is the labour availability and a kind of flow of labour demand. Um, you're introducing a need for, for weed control operations in the spring with the hoeing, which 
not, you know, if that's going to be a pinch point, I think. But there's already quite a strong case for an for just basic economics to have interrail hoeing, even in broadacre crops, as a an adjunct to herbicides. The herbicides are available almost as a substitute for the post M weed control we used to have, I guess. Yeah. Gives you more stability and outcomes, uh, mitigates the variability that we're seeing because we're relying on soil-acting herbicides to some extent. Um, other things, yeah, okay, there. <laughs> the situation's going to have to evolve on the ground for everyone to be investing in um, electric weeding and seed mills and top cut collect kit. I, I accept that, but you know we we need to have those options out there and understand them and have best advice for their use. Um, I mean, I'm not a great betting man, but I don't imagine weed control is going to get easier over time. I imagine it's going to get harder. Um, so take where we are now, fast forward 10 years, we're going to need some other tools, aren't we? That's quite simplistic, but that's probably the reality and unless we start exploring as I say things that might seem a bit out there right now I think over time they mature and they start to look a lot more yeah I mean I can see can see us running one of those yeah um, and we are we may well be in the slightly out there phase at the moment but we're still going to have to engage and, and look, keep an eye on them I think yeah so finally, the million-dollar question. In the meantime, before these new innovations become mainstream, um, what is the best thing a farmer listening to this can be doing for weed control on their farms? Um, very broad question. Very broad question. <laughs> I mean, I think realistically, seeking planning permission for a small retail farm is probably <laughs> the best thing you can do. For controlling most challenging areas. <laughs> oh, that's tricky, isn't it? What is the most? I mean, uh, before I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll delay because I, I'll try and use the left side of my brain to think of an answer to that. But I will say, let's not beat ourselves up. There is some great integrated weed management practice out there, and I know um, BSF did a survey recently that was around the Luxembourg launch and. I am Monsanto have done work in the past in the grass weed management. There is a lot of understanding of the principles of weed management. There's a lot of great practice out around there. There are evangelists talking about um, having a zero tolerance approach, but being realistic to the fact that you know a zero tolerance approach isn't something you do for five years and then the weeds go away. It's a it's a constant process. So there is some. You know, we don't need to beat ourselves up all the time, I think. But, but there's something that I know about weeds that no farmer on the planet knows about. I think that understanding is pretty well out there, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think if, if, you, if the weeds are getting away from you, let's put it that way, because you've got to look over time, you know, even people who maybe had a bad year with ryegrass or blackgrass this year, um, if you look back over time, you know, just think to yourself, is it, is it really getting away from me or are we all right here? We're slowly getting on top of it. Um, I think the starting point is to understand the problem. So 
there will be a lot of people out there whose weed is not ryegrass or is, is, is not blackgrass rather. If it's Italian ryegrass, you need, you need to understand that this is not blackgrass. It's a weed capable of germinating and seed in the spring. So your spring cropping approaches are going to be somewhat reduced in their effectiveness. It's a weed which germinates in a big flush. So I think the key thing is to understand the, the problem. Have you got brome? Which brome? Do you know the biology of that species? Where does it germinate in? What crops are going to be most effective? How should I manage my cultivation approaches? And then having done that, I think diversify. That's probably going to be the key thing. If you have a herb, you know, diversify in everything. Crops if you can, herbicides if you haven't already, weed control approaches, ultimately. Now, glyphosate is probably the most talked about pesticide in global farming and also an incredibly important one. But as we all know, its future is uncertain. And in the UK, it's currently approved for use until at least December 2025. But what will happen beyond that? And how is Europe influencing what happens here? Well, my colleague Ash Elwood is going to find out as she chats to Bayer Crop Sciences' Mark Buckingham. So thank you for joining me today. Um, I've got Mark Buckingham, who is the Corporate Engagement Lead of the UK and Ireland from Bayer. Um, He's just joining us today on the podcast to give a little bit of an update as to uh, where we are in the UK with glyphosate. So, Mark, if we could just start with giving us a little bit of an update as to the current situation in UK and Europe in regard to the current restrictions we've got. Sure, thank you, Ashley, and no thanks for the chance to, to talk about this. So, so we've got a, um, a um, an authorization for glyphosate herbicide here in the UK until December 2025, um, and it was extended um, like a range of other actives by the uh, UK regulators um, after the Brexit process, and um, it may be that it gets extended again. So, so the ball is in the UK regulators' court to um, uh, start a process and call for submission of a dossier. In- industry is 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 ready to do that when 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 the process is in place. Um, but at the moment, um, we've got until that that uh, the current license is in place until December 2025 for Great Britain. Um, so in Europe, they are right at the end of their renewal process. So you may recall uh, glyphosate was last re- renewed in Europe. Um, uh, at the beginning of 2017, and um, for only five years, um, and it was extended um, in December last year for a year. So the European authorization runs until December this year, a few months' time. Um, but the 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 voting process has has is just about to begin for member states to vote on a new authorization. And we expect that to start with meetings of the of the relevant committee um, later this month uh, and then over the next few months. So it's looking it's it's obviously politics, so you can't predict exactly how it's going to go. But, um, you know, we do expect there to be a new authorization for glyphosate in Europe um, from the end of this year. Okay, brilliant. And in terms of that sort of EU decision that's coming in December, um, is it always sort of a yes or no approach or could there be other options for glyphosate um, that could be used in different ways, such as looking at, I don't know, maximum use levels or close periods? Are there any other options that we might get? 
No, definitely, it's 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 going to be a, a, a compromise, and there will be there will be horse trading. Uh, it's 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 politics. This is the pol- pol- we've we've done the science bit, and now we're in the political bit. Um, and so I think I think you know there's a range of things that that could vary, and and the length of time of the authorization is one of the one of the key things. Um, this last uh, uh, license in in Europe was only for five years. That's a very short time for a product like glyphosate that has a very clean bill of health um, from the scientific review. So we are hopeful that Europe grants a longer um, license this time. Um, it could be up to 15 years, um, but we'll see. That's that's one variable. And then there's all the range of uses. So, um, you know, do they does the license look the same in terms of the the, the label uses that we have at the moment, or are there changes? All of those, you know, individual uses could vary as well. So there's a there's a lot of and and that's what we expect. Um, you know, I, I I don't think it'll be a, a yes no. Um, it, it'll be it'll be you know some some variation of of the kind of license we have at the moment. So quite recently, um, I believe the European Food Safety Authority um, released an opinion sort of suggesting that glyphosate poses no threat to human health, um, but they were looking for a little bit more data in some areas. Um, Can you just explain what this might mean sort of in practice um, and if you believe what influence this might have um, on UK policy moving forward? Sure. It's very good news. You know, Europe has a very robust cautious regulatory system and that has a very comprehensive scientific review so that two European regulators are involved the the European Food Safety Authority and the European Chemicals Agency and they've worked together and they've put put their findings out for peer review as well with member states and called for public consultation so so it's a very very comprehensive look at all the available scientific evidence and as you say, they came up with that um, uh, conclusion that there are no critical areas of concern for human health, uh, for the environment or for animal health, which is which is excellent. And that's that's a very strong piece of support for a new license for, for glyphosate. The data gaps you mentioned is around new um emerging areas of, of, sort of regulatory management, in particular biodiversity mainly and and so so europe is looking to set new rules for for pesticide registration around potential impacts on biodiversity but they haven't set those rules yet but they did find that the dossiers they're looking at already um you know don't contain information they might like to have on on biodiversity impacts but they haven't said what information it is they would like to have so um, all of the actives going through at the moment have received that kind of finding um, in relation to those data gaps. And we would expect um, that to be managed through the, the license creating process, the, the political process that they're doing now, whereby the, the, the conditions or the label restrictions on the license um, can be used to, to mitigate any risks that, that the scientists identify through those data gaps. So we think that's that's normal and, and expected given given the regulations. But we're we're very encouraged by the finding of the general finding of safety. And in terms of obviously we've got the EU decision coming, um, how does this sort of influence the UK? So what would be our next steps? 
what sort of time do we have and what sort of options do we have moving sure. forward? Sure. Well, it's interesting. I think, I mean, it, 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 we, we are now independent from the EU. So, it, 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 you know, on one level, we could do, you know, what we like, um, what, we, what we choose to do, regardless of what, of what the EU does. But, uh, you know, on another level, the, the scientific evidence base is obviously the same. You know, UK GB regulators will want to look at all the available science, just like the European regulators have done we would expect them to come to very similar conclusions because there's a, there's a great deal of scientific evidence available for glyphosate. It's been on the market um, for approaching 50 years. It was actually first launched in, in the UK in 1974. So we're in the sort of 49th year of, of availability here. So there's a huge amount of data available and, and knowledge of, of glyphosate um, and, and how it works. Um, and, and we would expect them to make similar findings if, if UK regulatory scientists look at that, uh, uh, you know, in the same way that the Europeans have done. Um, and then, but but yeah, the 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 type of uses that's determined it for the for the European license that that probably will be influential, sure. Um, but but we don't have to follow exactly what Europe does. But we don't, as I said, we don't have the details of the of the process for Great Britain yet. Northern Ireland obviously will follow the the um, Europe. That's so. So that's why I'm talking about Great Britain um, and Northern Ireland is separate. They will follow the EU license, so they'll get their clarity on on the future of glyphosate a bit sooner than us. Um, you know, hopefully by the end of this year. And then in 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 Great Britain, we've got the current license until at least December 2025. There's the potential for for that to be extended. And then we've got the new the new process we'll have to go through. So worst case scenario now, um, obviously, what happens if we do uh, lose glyphosate in 2025? How do you think this might affect sort of UK food production for our key crops that that use it? Well, that would be serious. It's it's a really important tool uh, for farmers and, and land managers um, across a wide range of industries and 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 uh, you know products, so I think I think and I hope that that is very unlikely um, that the you know regulators around the world have consistently found it to be safe. Um, it's off patent, so it's been off patent now for well over 20 years. So so there's a lot of competition in the glyphosate market. There are many manufacturers. Um, Bayer remains the largest, but there's many many competitors, and um, it, it's that's led to you know effective price competition and um it's 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 an important tool uh for farmers so i think if, if if it wasn't available studies indicate higher costs for farmers there's an interesting report out this week um i was reading um looking at costs and, and value saying that um across a range of european countries but including uk um farmers could lose of the order of 100 euros per hectare for arable and over 500 euros for perennial crops like grapes or or fruit um, if they didn't have access to glyphosate. Um, there's um, older research showing um, loss of crop production. So um, an ADAS report um, that Monsanto originally funded for the last review of glyphosate back in 2017 um, said that in the UK, if, if glyphosate wasn't available at all, we'd lose 
17% of wheat production and around the same amount of oilseed rape production. Obviously, there's been a lot of change in oilseed rape production since then, but 17% but of wheat production is really significant. And, and that report found to replace the lost production from, from non-availability of glyphosate, UK farmers would need another half a million additional hectares of land. So that's a big, a big additional area of land bringing it, bringing it into production. So that, that the economic and environmental impacts of not having glyphosate are, are very significant potentially. And I think, I think you know, fingers crossed, that's very unlikely. We, we would expect it to continue to be available. And um, just even if we have sort of maximum use levels or anything like that, are there any other sort of alternative options we have? Things like electronic weeders, anything that's as effective as glyphosate that's currently in the pipeline or in the market? There's, there's, it's really, this is really why glyphosate's got this special position is it's, it's a, it's a unique mix of being a very effective herbicide for quite a broad spectrum of weeds, um, being at an affordable price, given that the, the patent situation and, and its maturity in the marketplace, as I was, as I was talking about, um, and given its safety profile that we know a lot about it and we can be very confident that it is, um, safe for non-targets when used according to the label. So, so the, 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 that mixture of, of efficacy, affordability and safety is, 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 is what gives it its, its popularity um, and you know, very, very wide, widespread use. So, so it, alternatives are hard to find. We need some alternatives, partly for um, resistance risk management. One of, one of the biggest actual risks to glyphosate is um, resistant weed populations. Now we've been fortunate in the UK, um, partly because of, we have a history of using quite a lot of tillage in, in our uh, arable rotations. Um, and that's a very effective alternative weed control mode of action to, 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 um, uh, to till or cultivate or plow, um, which obviously non-chemical. Um, but in, in, in countries where they haven't done so much tillage for longer periods like Australia, parts of the US, um, South Africa, they have seen um, you know, resistance emerge to glyphosate in some weed populations. So that's something so far we've avoided here. We need to continue to avoid it. It's, it's, it would be a cost and an additional management sort of headache if we had resistant populations. So having alternative modes of action like some cultivation um, or other herbicides is important for that. So we certainly, you know, support farmers in, in good stewardship of glyphosate um, for those reasons. I think another one is cost. Um, some of these alternatives like electric weeding are very expensive. So that's because they're slow um, and they can be slow. And also they use a lot of power, the electric um, example does. And I think it also creates new risks. I think, you know, those very new means of weed control, um, they may develop and, and, you know, become more efficient and effective. Um, but at the moment, we don't fully understand the risks that they pose to non-targets, to soil microorganisms, to soil biota, um, to, to the users even, um, for example. So so there's, there's, you know, innovation is very welcome, but, but 
understanding what what strengths and weaknesses those innovations have is important. I think glyphosate is a known quantity after 49 years. Some of these alternatives are far less well understood. So so we need to you know work through that. Uh, and 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 you know some of, as they establish as they as people you know try them, we'll, we'll get more knowledge about some of those some of those alternative methods. But I think you know glyphosate as a as a real mainstay of of good weed management is is likely to be around for quite a long time and to try and make sure it is around for as long as you know we possibly can what sort of advice would you give to farmers to retain this use and to sort of you know use it carefully sure well one i mean one is good stewardship as i was saying about about managing resistance risk um you know re- read the label understand um, the weeds you're looking to control and what growth stage they're at, uh, the appropriate rate, um, the appropriate water rate, et cetera, you know, get those things right um, to get a good level of control um, and, you know, be alert for escapes or, or poor control um, and and manage that, you know, don't, don't take risks with, with, with weed resistance development. Um, that would be number one, I would say. Also, I think you know, talk about the 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 why herbicides are necessary, um, and why you know we cultivate or, or or use a herbicide to manage weeds, manage volunteers, and and establish our crops. Um, you know, explain to non-farmers what's going on and why you know these tools are part of a, a farming system in britain um and and what what they bring so so don't be shy about about you know using social media or or you know talking to contacts and, and stakeholders about these things i think communication and explaining that um you know after long experience most farmers have come to the conclusion that glyphosate is a really important and useful and valuable tool and, and that's why it's got this popularity and this position in our farming system and we need to explain that that's not obvious to non-farmers but the non-farmers get a say in the politics around these products if they do become political so so we need to talk about it and keep keep talking about it lovely that's great thank you so much mark that's um that's really great thanks for joining us on the podcast today Thank you.